I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshananthan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So Whit, I know you used to record this show from your childhood bedroom and that your parents live near you, and I'm wondering, when was the last time you hugged them? I mean, it has to be early March, probably. Uh... They live in the ha- they do live in the house that I grew up in. It's only a few blocks from where I'm sitting right now, so I, I do see them. Uh, we got to go, you know, like it was Father's Day. We did a thing in the backyard where we were masked and sort of socially distant from from my parents. But I don't I don't touch them. What about you? Well, my parents live on the East Coast, so I haven't hugged them in longer than I really want to calculate. Um, and I've been trying to figure out how to see them, but so far I can't come up with any safe answers. And my dad is a retired pulmonologist, actually, so it's been really interesting to talk to him about the pandemic and about the virus. And my parents have been really cautious. And now I feel like they're trying to convince me, they actually said this to me, FaceTime is pretty close to being in person, but that's just lies. Yeah, my my mom is not buying that. Uh, she She... She has this idea that she wants to, she told me the other day she's imagining making like an entirely plastic like suit to wear so that she could like put uh, my kids in her lap, her other, and her other grandkids, you know, but I don't know. My dad's in his mid eighties, but my mom's younger than him by by almost a decade, but my dad's in his mid eighties. So is my father-in-law. I have a great aunt who's in her mid nineties, you know, and so some of my older relatives are starting to say things like, why are we doing this? You know, we don't have that many years left. I'm speaking in their sort of general voice, you know, and we don't, we didn't, weren't expecting the last years of our lives to be as lonely and isolating as this, you know, and, and be separate from our grandkids. 
Yeah, this seems like a quality of life issue that some doctors are writing about now. You know, what which risks should we take? And there, there's been some interesting risk ranking. And given the possible duration of this thing and what people are beginning to understand about that, a lot of people's tolerance for risk is shifting in different ways. And those conversations and how they affect our emotional lives keeps changing. And I feel like I kind of can't keep up. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, this episode is about the second slash first wave slash ongoing forest fire of COVID-19 as it sweeps across America. Both of our guests are doctors and writers. Later in the show, we'll be joined by the poet and radiation oncologist C. Dale Young. But first, we're delighted to be joined by Daniela Lamas. Daniela is a pulmonary and critical care physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, an instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School, and associate faculty at Ariadne Labs, where she works with the Serious Illness Care Program. She's the author of the 2018 book, You Can Stop Humming Now, A Doctor's Stories of Life, Death, and In Between, as well as several New York Times op-eds about COVID-19. She is also a staff writer for the 20th Century Fox medical TV drama, The Resident. Daniela, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, Daniela, you've been treating COVID patients and writing about the pandemic for the times basically since the beginning. And we're recording this episode on Saturday, June 26th, uh, and... As of about now, according to the Times, there have been more than 2.4 million confirmed COVID-19 cases, more than 125,000 deaths in the U.S. And originally, we thought of this episode as being about the second wave of the coronavirus. That was kind of our internal headline for it. But about a week ago, Michael Osterholm, the ever-quoted Michael Osterholm of the University of Minnesota's Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, said he thinks it's more like a forest fire. So I'm curious about what you think. So I think that uh, that term is very apt. Um, I myself had framed my own kind of experience of COVID um, in this idea of, all right, we had the surge in Boston and now the surge uh, has ended. Our numbers are, are vastly lower. We've closed most of our coronavirus units here in Boston at my hospital. But then, you know, you open up the news and my family lives in Miami and you look at what's going on and, and, and you realize that, you know, outside of this this particular experience that I've had that's shared by, by those in New York in terms of the timing of the, the surge and then the, the you know, decrease in numbers, throughout the rest of the country, that's not the case at all. You know, really, if we look, if we look at numbers of the entire country uh, in terms of cases, we didn't really drop significantly. We just changed where those cases are. And so this idea of a forest fire that's sort of tearing through and taking down anyone, anywhere that is vulnerable, any areas that are vulnerable, I think is really a, a sort of devastating, but also more accurate way to look at it. And I think it allows us or requires us actually not to say, okay, we're unscathed, we're in the clear. Well, no, because, because it could come back to us uh, because we're still vulnerable. Well, I mean, the point of view from Kansas City, you know, was that we really didn't have hardly any cases and it was very low. We didn't have much of a peak, but I have been watching for the last two weeks, you know, steadily every day, you know, those, those numbers are going up. People have been asking, like, there is an issue about like, first of all, there's like what percentage of people tested are coming up positive. That is also important because it, because there's this argument that the administration is still advancing stupidly, that it's only just that we're doing more tests is the difference, but that clearly doesn't seem to be the case. But also maybe you could talk a little bit about the declining death rate and how that relates to what's going on? Yeah. I mean, I think all of these numbers that we're tossing around and these different metrics really uh, bring home the fact that 
this virus is so hard for us as as people to respond to you know like if you think about sort of behavioral economics and how we think about risk and what drives us um, this is a virus where we don't see the effects of the good things that we do or the bad things that we do for weeks at least and we personally an individual might never see the effects of the bad things and, and i'm saying bad things it's not sort of good or bad it's not that black or white but well, like the thing i did that caused me to get, get covid the time i got exposed we don't know when that happened you know or or maybe you got exposed but then you were only asymptomatic or very mild symptoms but it's actually like somebody's grandmother who got sick because of that time that you were at a bar and and you can't tell that and that's so hard to make that decision as, as a person to say I'm going to uh, make the decision not to go to a bar uh, to keep a person I don't know to keep their grandmother safe and 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 I think that that is you know our our overall leaders and our those who make decisions that they, they shouldn't we shouldn't have the option of doing something that is unsafe and known to be unsafe and is unnecessary like bars should not be open it is not safe um, between the time that somebody gets coronavirus and dies, that can be as long as weeks. You can be five to sort of seven to 10 days before you get bad symptoms. Then at that point you go to a hospital. Doctors, we can keep you alive for weeks and weeks on a ventilator and on our machines hoping that you get better. So the lag that we see now, the, the decrease in death rate is really a statement about activities that happened weeks and weeks ago. I feel like it's like watching the whole nation, and I realize this is a flawed study for a variety of reasons. It's like watching the whole nation eat the marshmallow. Yes. Yeah. So for our listeners who might not recall this, there was a study years and years ago, which is oft quoted about, um, you know, the kid who with a marshmallow in front of them promised like three marshmallows later can manage not to eat the marshmallow. And then, you know, other kids who eat the marshmallow in front of them, regardless of what they're promised later. I have a lot of friends on Facebook who have eaten the marshmallow and are really pissed at anyone criticizing them for eating the marshmallow. Like, damn it, I had a right to eat that marshmallow. What are you talking yeah. about? Well, not only do they want to eat the marshmallow, they want to like smear marshmallow fluff all over everyone else. And it's, um, I mean, and, and you're also talking about the long duration, which we'll get to a little bit later. But, you know, one of your expertises is um, critical care and end of life care, which you've written a lot about. And... Since the start of the pandemic, it seems like the experience of end of life care and for both from the both the patient and the physician view has changed a lot. Can you talk a little bit about that? For sure. You know, I think I think before COVID um, and, you know, even since I trained, which isn't that long ago, we've really had like big moves toward having family in the ICU at the end of life and really involving family. We even sometimes, if it seems appropriate, if a patient is coding, if they're in a cardiac arrest and we're doing CPR and the family is around, we ask them, do you want to be in the room for this? Because there's a little data about the fact that that actually decreases post-traumatic stress for families afterwards, seeing that we tried everything seeing that you know we, we did everything possible for a loved one. Um, we ideally don't want deaths to end in cardiac arrest. We, you know, ideally, uh, if somebody is, is dying, we want it to sort of be a, a more dignified, peaceful process if it's something that we can know ahead of time and is unavoidable, but we have families at that bedside and, and now that's, that's gone. Um, you know, we, uh, we know facts that we did not know before, uh, little things that an iPad fits very nicely in a biohazard bag and that you can hold that iPad up to a patient's face and have a family uh, say goodbye on Zoom, um, which is weird and terrible. And um, in the height of the pandemic here, that is how 
people died. We Our hospital has relaxed the rules somewhat, so now you can have a family in at the time of death or in the most relaxed version more recently, uh, up to 72 hours before a patient dies, as though we're able to prognosticate that exactly. Um, but but this all the weeks before death, all of the time that this patient spends sick, um, the family gets updates on the phone still, and, and that is, is very lonely, it's very isolating, and it really cuts them out of, of all this really valuable time that they have. Um, and that's that's been a, you know, that's, it's been one of these really powerful, uh, sort of unanticipated and I think long-lasting consequences of this pandemic. This is one of those things, and this is why we have we're talking to you now because of the what you we've written about this. It, you know, imagining saying goodbye to to my parents in the way that you're describing is just incredibly devastating. That's the thing I think about every day when I think about how I'm going to conduct my business and who I'm going to see and who I'm going to be around. But also, you know, it's not like it's fun for a young person to have this disease. It can do terrible things. There's clotting. There's, you know, you can get strokes. I don't. I just think people are failing to imagine how bad it is to get this. Everyone imagines they're going to be the asymptomatic one. And that's that's that human bias toward optimism. I mean, you ask people with lung with, who are smokers what their chances of getting lung cancer, and and they all believe it is lower than, or not all, but many believe it is lower than the other smoker. It's lower than their actual risk. And and there's something sort of wonderfully human about being optimistic, um, but also yes, believing that you are going to be in that in that lucky percent, um, and uh, you know these are unimaginable states like. It, we haven't uh, very few people you know thankfully have been in icus um know what it is like to be in you know a long-term care hospital and so so trying to trying to protect yourself against these unimaginable states i think is is hard it's a hard thing for us to ask people to do which is why i think you know we need default systems in place that that push people to do the safe thing instead of asking them to make that choice so, Daniela, you were just speaking a little bit about the loneliness, patients saying goodbyes over FaceTime or Zoom. And I feel like recently I saw a lot of my friends mark 100 days of social distancing. Um, we're living in this weird twilight zone-esque world of remoteness and isolation. And, and could you talk about how loneliness has looked for you and for your patients? Because it feels like we're all just kind of alone together. Are there ways to mitigate or think about that? I think, I think that's a really powerful question. I like the, the Twilight Zone-esque uh, framework. I hadn't thought of that myself, but that is the way it feels. Um, you know, in a way, for, for me, the hospital, um, the hospital working in the hospital actually mitigated, mitigates loneliness to some degree. I, you know, realized with my residents and the nurses and other doctors I was working with that we were, um, we were social, you know, we, uh, we were able to be in person and work together as a team in person and in a in a horrible environment um clearly but uh everyone else had to retreat and we had this you know ability to go to work and and there was something sort of paradoxically uh, uh fortunate um about that you know i think i think seeing all of these patients you know behind closed doors talking to families on the phone um, knowing that that they're all alone, uh, it is this sort of shared feeling, and and I hope I hope not to be you know inappropriately optimistic as we just kind of talked about, but you know you wonder about like post traumatic growth. You know you think about patients who've had an ICU stay and then find some or are able to make some meaning afterwards. I I'm not sure what we will collectively take from this 
loneliness and what we can make of it. Um, but I think we are in we are in a really weird place together, and and I I feel that, and I'm not I'm not sure quite what to make of it. The loneliness of the disease is unique. You were talking about the loneliness of care, right, um, earlier, and but the the thing is, I often see like. I will also see my right-wing friends or not friends uh, comment about like, well, there's going to be an increase in suicides. I think Vice President Pence was talking something about this. Like there's mental, there's bad mental health effects for everyone staying inside. And I get that. I understand that. However, you know, the loneliness of having this disease is also <laughs> creates tremendous mental health issues, even if you do survive. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, there are there are people who have not seen their families who are getting better, but have not seen families. Our hospital's now relaxing things, as I said, but have not seen families for, for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, that leads to increased delirium. And, and even once they see families, once they're back in their world, there's this experience that they had of being lonely, of being scared, of being in a room with doctors who enter. And you can tell, I know this because I've been that doctor, they want to get out of that room as fast as possible. Like everyone is scared. And this idea that you've like been alone and that you were in some way like poison to others potentially, I don't know what that does in the long term. Uh, but that, that surely does something. And and thinking about that is, is sort of heartrending. So is there anything we don't have like a national department of grief? Are there things that American society and even also the medical profession could be doing to support the way that Americans are going to have to deal with the way that they're dying of this disease and the way that we're experiencing grief, you know, across this nation now. I mean, I think recognizing it um, is one thing that is sort of simple and maybe it doesn't sound that useful, but but is important. You know, we even before coronavirus, um, I worked in a, a really sad ICU, so it's affiliated with uh, our cancer center here in Boston. And so we had a lot of deaths and um the day before we started getting a bunch of COVID patients, uh, there was a 24-hour period where we had four entirely non-COVID, uh, two were cancer, two were other deaths. And it was a really busy, awful day. And, and we didn't take any time to debrief. And um, it took me about an entire week until I realized, like, my God, my residents were just through four patients who died, two of them by codes. And now we have a bunch of COVID patients and, and they're devastated. And so... In the morning, we had death rounds, um, which uh, essentially we just talked about these patients who had died and the way we were feeling about it. And all of us kind of wished we had done something differently, although there wasn't clearly anything we could have done. It was all sort of unavoidable. We had done good medicine. Um, but I think that there was some way they were not, they, patients remained dead. It didn't fix anything, but there was some way in which that was helpful and sort of as a nation have a collective death rounds or, you know, grief loss rounds. I don't know what that means, but. Well, I mean, for that's, that's our business. We're in the book, you're in the narrative writing business. I think that's where that comes in, in certain ways. Yeah, I think that's, that entirely makes sense. And and to sort of recognize that there isn't like a hierarchy of these losses, you know, even if you haven't lost someone to COVID, even if you haven't been in the hospital, like you've been at home and you haven't seen people that you love and, you know, many people have lost jobs. And so everyone is aware of like the precarious nature of, of what we built and of what we thought was just taken for granted before all of this. 
I also wonder about the ways that American individuality plays into this. I feel like I see a series of strange paradoxes where, you know, we're so obsessed with individual rights in this country. We have a real inability to talk about collective needs, um, what communities might need in the scope of American history. And, you know, we're seeing some reckoning with this now related to George Floyd and those protests, um, increased conversations about um, indigenous people. But, you know, right, some of the resistance, that optimism that we're talking about is a really individual and false optimism. And so we don't have this ability to contend with the need for other people. We don't have ability to articulate a need for other people, which is really, you know, that desire to go to the bar to some extent. That's I mean, isn't that what it is? But Americans are not supposed to talk about needing other people and the desire to. I feel like our empathy has been slowly drained away from us, the ability to imagine other people, because, you know, as as you manage to pay someone else a low wage um, or not care about whether they have health care or not care about whether they have to walk by a Confederate statue, like all of those things are sucking away your ability to care about the person you don't know. And so I just I find it really weird Um because right in all of these other countries where, you know, there's so-called, um, you know, socialism or even just different forms of democracy, they seem to be doing a much better job of this um, and to be better prepared for it. Yeah, I mean, that gives me chills. That's so true. It's it's that it's that we we live in a state where essentially to exist like we we have learned to look away uh, in some way. And now we're being asked we have to not look away because we're all we are literally all interconnected. Um you know, and that individualism, there is this, like, we want two things. We want to be safe, but we want to also be free, you know, like protect me, but also leave me alone. And, and in order to be safe, we can't, we can't be, we, you can't say, leave me alone. Like you got to wear that mask. You have to do, you have to do what we all know we have to do. So we were talking a little bit about, um, you know, that the long afterlife, I don't even know that afterlife is the right word, but the long duration, maybe just of novel coronavirus. And you've written not only about the end of life care, but I think one of your essays that was most interesting to me is about the long and extremely variable kind of rehab and after effects. And that seems like another American thing that we have a hard time to hard time imagining, because we just sort of imagine like living every minute to the fullest. And like, what is that the stereotype of that mean? I'm not suggesting that people with, um, you know, physical after effects of coronavirus aren't going to live full lives, but the shape of that might be different. Um, and I wonder if you could read a little bit from that piece for us, and I'd love to talk to you about it. So the, the context of this piece um, is that I do some work in a long-term acute care hospital, even before coronavirus. So a hospital where people who've been sick enough to need ventilators and then got better enough that they could leave the ICU, but not better enough such that they were able to go home or exist without a ventilator, um, would be connected to a vent by something called a tracheostomy tube, a sort of hole in the neck where a tube goes in that offers a longer term connection to the ventilator that allows them ideally to get strong enough to get off the vent. Can I just say that that is, <laughs> don't, I so don't like that. I, that seems, that's so terrifying to me, this, the physical nature of that description. Like I wanted to stop there for a minute and say, like, the imagining being in that situation is extremely frightening for me. I mean, it's not something to blow through. And I did essentially, um, that's, it's a big deal. It's a, it's a big inflection point in people's care. And, um, having a trach and being connected to a vent means you largely don't go home. And it also means you're largely like not out there in the world, which means you're not seen, which means that these, these after effects, uh, are not really seen. Um, you know, we, we think of the ICU as having one of two conclusions alive. And alive looks like bells and whistles, uh, exciting music, going home, resuming your life as it was, or death. 
Uh, but in fact, there is this middle. And so um, I will read you a little bit about a piece about that middle. At least we know how to track and treat the physical consequences of our patients' prolonged ICU stays. These outcomes are visible. More insidious are the potential psychiatric and cognitive dysfunction that some former ICU patients describe. Anxiety and depression, hyperarousal, and flashbacks to delirium-induced hallucinations that are characteristic of post-traumatic stress, poor planning skills, and forgetfulness that might make it hard to remember medications or appointments. These are far trickier to screen for and to treat. Of course, it is early still, and we do not yet know the burden of these outcomes in our COVID-19 survivors. But given their protracted critical care stays and the persistent isolation that so many of them endure, these issues will be widespread. At our hospital, before the coronavirus, we built a clinic for ICU survivors. There, I worked with another critical care doctor, a psychiatrist, and a social worker to screen our patients for common post-ICU problems and to offer them referrals. Patients asked us to fill in missing details. What happened to me? How long was I on the vent? This scar? What was it from? On a few occasions, we even accompanied patients back to the intensive care unit. I remember how their expressions would shift, fear fading into relief, as they realized that this was just a place that they could now enter by choice and then leave again. We do not have rigorous studies to tell us that these clinics help our patients, and it will be hard to set them up now, with so many of us critical care doctors still doing the work of keeping our patients alive, keeping ourselves safe. I do not pretend to have the answers here, but we owe it to our survivors to try. We have come to recognize that for many patients with coronavirus, the disease follows a characteristic pattern. For them, there is an initial constellation of symptoms, fever and cough, followed by a period of improvement and then a catastrophic decline, a disease with two waves. I think of us now as a nation at the end of our own first wave. We breathe a bit easier. Perhaps we will be okay after all. But the second wave is coming, not of death this time, but of survival. That afternoon at the long-term care hospital, I was startled in the middle of writing my notes by an unintelligible announcement on the overhead. I turned to one of the respiratory therapists. A COVID patient is being discharged, he explained. Wanna go see? We rushed down the stairs to join the group that had already gathered, all of us in scrubs and masks waiting. Someone turned the music on and here comes the sun filled the small lobby. Behind me, the patient's two adult sons radiated excitement. When they last saw their father, he could not breathe. I watched as the elevator doors opened and a nurse emerged, pushing a small man in a wheelchair. He scanned the crowd, spotted his sons, and gave us all this proud little wave, like royalty. I clapped as loud as I could for him, mouthing the song's refrain, it's all right, behind my mask, not knowing what this virus would leave him with or what kind of life he would re-enter, but hoping the words were true. Thank you so much. Um... Our, I was talking about this essay with our um, terrific intern, Dylan, and we were really appreciating the optimism, but also like there's a little ambiguity there, obviously, at the end in relation to what we were talking to. And it's fascinating to see into the specifics of what it's like to recover um, and the uncertainty out there, too. And that piece was published about a month and a half ago. And after I read this piece, I started wondering if the U.S. is going to end up with a much larger disabled population than before with a different set of disabilities than the ones our system has generally prepared for. And I'm curious about what you think about that. What are the long-term effects for American healthcare for generations to come, maybe the economics of our system? Yeah. 
You know, I think I think that that preparing for for survivors of of COVID is something that that we really we really don't have a system for, and that that we're going to we're going to see these people. We're already starting to see these people, obviously. And 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 what is that going to look like? I mean, the physical nature of it. You know, these patients are often um, sedated for a long time, could be weeks. Uh, often they are so sick that we gave them medicine that. Uh, paralyzes them, that stops their muscles from working, particularly their diaphragm, uh, so that they don't uh, sort of make any movements against the ventilator, which can increase lung injury in the people who are really, really sick when their lungs are inflamed and really stiff. So all of that is to say, like, even in a young, healthy person, that does a job on your muscles, that does a job on you. And it is going to take a while. And by a while, I don't mean days, I don't mean weeks, I mean months. Um, to get back to a point where you are physically where you were before, if you get there at all. And, and our insurance isn't great for, for long-term physical therapy. I mean, these are, these are, these are issues that, that we're going to face, and a lot of people are not going to be able to pay that stuff out of pocket. And at least we can see that. As I said in that essay, I think we're also going to see many people with, with cognitive dysfunction. That means that it's hard for them to get back to work. Um, how are we going to support them with, with psychiatric problems? And, and as we know, um, COVID has uh, disproportionately impacted uh, people in vulnerable and largely minority populations. And these are populations uh, for whom mental health care um, is also uh, not as easily uh, accessible um, or sought out. And, um, and I think that, and I think that that trying to be able to normalize um, mental health care, uh, the idea of post-traumatic stress, and give it in language and sort of culture-appropriate ways is something that is going to take a big lift, and, and, but I think is, is essential to do. But I don't know that we have a system for it. You know, on our small sort of microcosm level at my hospital, we're trying to figure out like, all right, you know, can we get the Spanish interpreter in uh, to, you know, appropriately screen our post-ICU patients for PTSD? But that's one question. The other question is, can we get the patient in, you know, if the appointment is on Zoom, can we make sure the patient has access? You know, there's there's all of these layers and you can just see between each layer people getting lost. And, and that's, it's, you know, it's, it's an, another level of tragedy. When you were working in the hospital, I guess, what, do you work five days a week, six days a week? What are your... It totally depends um, on the week and sort of when we're called in. I mean, right now, um, I don't have another shift for uh, more than a week. So um, because our COVID units are are fairly closed um, and uh, things have really calmed down. I'm, you know, we're on so that there's a system of backup. They're keeping some of the units open and empty. Um, ready to be called back in. But during COVID, we were working, you know, I was working days, nights, sort of staggered. And you never got infected? Do you ever sit around and think, oh my God, you know, like I remember coming back from Iraq. I was a reporter in Iraq and thinking how grateful I was to be alive. Uh, I don't know if you have any, have had any of those emotions or thoughts or experiences now that you're sort of in a much calmer period of time. I have, I've had these, uh, moments of fear of like, have I gotten careless? Um, you know, was it actually just hard to swallow or am I just going nuts? Um, and, and I feel, I feel lucky that I didn't get it. I don't know, you know, maybe it's that optimism we were talking about. Like I was, I was really scared in some moments and then I sort of shut it off. Um, 
I think I think maybe maybe I haven't I haven't really thought about that as much as as much as I could yet. Maybe I'm still in that. I would say that the anxiety that I had to wrestle with after having been in Iraq didn't manifest itself for several years. I never had any anxiety issues in my life and suddenly I was you know needing to go to a therapist and taking medication and yeah, I wonder how much the whole nation is kind of just punting on this. Um because in part because there isn't bandwidth and in part because of, again, that looking away that we were talking about. Um, so how have things evolved for the Boston area folks who are in the rehab facilities that you're talking about or people kind of, how is that progressing for some of the people that you wrote about in that piece? So some of them are home. Um, some, some of the people We've seen shorter rehab stays for some of these patients um, than we have for, you know, patients who similarly go to rehab, trace and vented. Um, some of my uh, favorite patients, it's so funny to say that about people I've actually never talked to. Like, I, I don't know them, really. I've never known them awake, but uh, but I you know, care uh, greatly about them. And I know little facts that their families tell me. Um, a couple of them who I was taking care of in the ICU who I actually, if you had asked me to put a bet on it, would not have thought that they would live, um, are now in that same rehab hospital and are actually getting better, though it will be long and slow. Um, and some have passed away and some are, you know, still there. Um, but, but they're moving forward. Um, you know, we're good at the acute care. We're, we're okay at the rehab hospital. Um, after that, uh, we kind of lose it. I, I talked to a patient yesterday or maybe the morning before on the phone who was my first COVID patient I'd ever taken care of. Uh, I think she came into the hospital on like March 15 or so. And um, she was intubated for about three weeks. Then she went to that rehab hospital and cared for her in both places. Then she went home. And now like she can't figure out how to get an appointment. She doesn't have our primary care doctor. She was calling our clinic, but then, you know, she missed the call back and like, it was just, you know, she was asking me these questions about like, well, can I travel and blah, blah, blah. And she feels totally unsupported. Like, you know, we saved her and now we've kind of just dropped her. And, um, and so I worry about that. I worry about that for a lot of those people. As I mentioned earlier, cases are increasing here in Kansas City. In fact, starting Monday, the mayor has issued a you must wear a mask in public order, which I'm a huge fan of. I saw that. I like cheered for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Things are kind of, I think, a little more mellow or plateauing in Minnesota. Um, but, you know, we still have we have all these different situations all over the country. You know, uh, we're going to ask you the question that is impossible to answer, but that's why you're here. Uh, what's going to happen next? You know, I think thinking a lot about this, like balance between like individualism and and you know, sort of community, I mean, I'm so tempted, like in Boston, you know, I look outside, it's like relatively pretty out today. And I'm so tempted to say like, all right, well, we're good here. Um, but then if I like expand that view and I look out and, you know, you look out, I don't even know need to go to the nation as a whole. I look at my family in Miami and it's like, well, we're not good here. And so I think, you know, you look at these, these graphs that they make in the times and other places and, and things just move. And this is just, you know, I think until we have a coordinated response that looks at us not as like little different pockets with different rules, but like as a as a whole, um, and and requires people, doesn't ask people personally, don't go to a bar, but but makes it impossible for people to do things that aren't safe. I think until that happens, or until we get a vaccine and that vaccine is scaled up and given to people, 
whichever happens first, I think it's just going to keep moving. I think it's going to keep moving and then we're going to think we're safe and then we're going to relax and then it could get worse again um, until something changes. So you're suggesting we need a federal government. I wouldn't go that far. (laughs) Yeah, No, I want to say I agree with you about the federal government thing. I mean, I was thinking about this. You know, the Trump administration says things, then doesn't do them all the time. So they said, like, well, it should be different in different regions. And I actually think, like, an organized federal government response would have said during the early part of the lockdown in March, like, hey, Kansas City, you don't have to be on lockdown. You're fine. And New York needs to be locked down, right? Because we locked down and we didn't actually have very much virus around here. And now no one wants to do it because they've been locked down for two months. But we need to be locked down now. Yeah, it seems like there's, yeah, there's the the patience factor. And perhaps patience is also something Americans don't generally cultivate. But I mean, it just, you could reduce the patience by just being organized instead of being like, well, maybe we could shine light inside our bodies and kill the virus. Instead, you could say like, hey, let's have an organized response. And like, you know, it just didn't even occur to the federal government. So many things haven't occurred to the federal government. Um... But yeah, I mean, I was I was glad to see local officials rise, but there's only sort of so much they can do because they are, in fact, right. You know, I remember reading about that text chain of governors and I was like, who's on that? Who's not on that? Um, you know, I want to be a fly on that WhatsApp wall. Um, so, Danielle, I feel like it would be it would be wrong to let you go without asking you a little bit about the most recent turn in your writing career, which is that since the last time I saw you um, in context for our listeners, Danielle and I are friends from college. And I last saw you about five years ago when I was also living in the Boston area. And since then, you have become a a staff writer for The Resident. And I know you are kind of, you know, you have a longstanding love of medical drama. And I wonder how all of this is impacting your show. You're thinking about writing fictional narratives about all of this. It's it's interesting. So, you know, we're talking about how to make uh, fiction from coronavirus and, and what stories to try to tell. And it feels, I mean, it's, it feels odd um, to be talking about doing this sort of fictional work on something that is still ongoing. And like, we're not actually going to be able to film any of the fictional coronavirus until the real coronavirus is uh, diminished enough such that it is safe to have actors pretend to be in a hospital fighting the fictional coronavirus. And so it's this odd, like sort of circle of, of uncertainty. Um, and you know, I, I think it's fun, you know, it's fun to, it's fun to write medical narratives. It's fun to try to find different ways to sort of give lessons to audiences. It's odd to be doing so with so much uncertainty about what will be going on in the world when these lessons are sort of told, when these stories are told, um, and how you can tell them, uh, in a way that doesn't, uh, put your actors at risk for getting the real thing that they're fictionally acting about. So what constraints do you have on your writing as a result? Well, there's, there's some like rule or not rules, recommendations that have been put forth from the various unions. And um, the goal right now is to definitely minimize crowd scenes. So unless somehow your show cannot exist without a crowd scene, like no crowd scenes, um, we're told that uh, we should minimize intimate scenes as much as possible and also fight scenes. Um, both of those being uh, ways that people could sort of get aerosolized virus. This is in key, like in concert with regular testing. So all of the recommendations are saying like these actors are going to get tested. I, mean, I don't know how they're going to comply with this, but they're going to get tested three times a week. They want to find rapid testing so they can maybe rapidly test you right before a kiss scene. It's, it's very aspirational, I think. Daniela, 
Thank you so much for joining us on the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. You can check out Daniela's uh, op-eds chronicling the pandemic in the New York Times. Up next, we'd like to welcome C. Dale Young. C. Dale practices medicine full-time and teaches in the Warren Wilson College MFA program for writers. He's the author of a novel and stories, The Affliction, published in 2018, and four collections of poetry, the most recent being his 2016 collection titled The Halo. His poetry and short fiction have appeared in many anthologies and magazines, including Best American Poetry, Asian American Poetry, The Next Generation, American Poetry Review, The Atlantic Monthly, The Nation, The New Republic, The Paris Review, and Poetry. He is also a radiation oncologist and currently lives and practices medicine in San Francisco. C. Dale, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We're super happy to have you on the show, C. Dale. Whitney and I are both located in the Midwest, but we've been talking just now to Daniela Lamas, who works in the Boston area. You're in San Francisco, so can you tell us about the West Coast view of the pandemic these days? Well, I don't know that I can speak to the West Coast in general, but I can definitely speak to the Bay Area. And, you know, one of the things is we were the very first to quote unquote lockdown and we have not significantly reopened, actually. And it's been it's been interesting to see the changes. First, people saying things like, of course, San Francisco's locking down. They're crazy. Um, to, oh my God, we need to lock down, to, oh, we need to reopen, and we're still locked down. Um, but I think that, I think that, you know, California followed as a state our lead about three or four days after we went to shelter in place. And again, I can't speak for all of California, but I can definitely say that in the Bay Area, we flattened the curve within several weeks. And we really have not had the hospital admissions or the deaths that we were expecting. So I think a lot of people here, even though they're not excited about shelter in place, are still aware of the fact that it it has a benefit. So that uptick, I mean, I've been seeing, you know, the I look at the on the New York Times, the graphs for all the states every week, especially places where I know people and my sister and my and my wife's family lives in uh, in San Francisco, so um, you know. So we're seeing an uptick in cases overall in the state. But you're saying like in San, in San Francisco actually is not quite seeing that same sort of movement. Are you able to see the individual city statistics for San Francisco? I don't see the individual statistics, but I talk to doctors at the various hospitals, and all of our all of our experience has been roughly the same. We just haven't had the ICU admissions. We haven't had the cases, the deaths that we were expecting. You know, the the tricky thing about California is it's a very large state and almost 40 million people live here. So we're talking about a population almost as large as Spain. And the variations across California are huge. So, you know, a lot of people think of California and they think earthy, crunchy, liberal but there are vast parts of the state that are actually not liberal at all. It's not just Orange County, though. There are places like, you know, Imperial County and other places, um, 
other inland parts of the state where people have not been as careful about following the guidelines. Um, they don't necessarily see the threat of a virus. And we don't have a treatment. We have remdesivir, which now shows benefits. We don't have a vaccine. So even if we want to reopen, we can't just reopen however we feel like it. We, we really need to follow guidelines more similar to what countries in the European Union are doing. But yeah, there are parts of California that are, for all intents and purposes, Texas. We're just sort of polling everyone we're talking to, like, what does it look like outside? Here in Kansas City, it's very varied. If I go to Home Depot, nobody has a mask on. It's like it's 2017, right? It's crazy. Not even the employees, right? Other places are different, um, you know, so what are you What are you seeing? And Sugi, actually, I haven't asked you this. I want to hear what you're seeing, too, when you walk around Minneapolis. Well, if I walk outside right now, I don't see a lot of people. And when I do see people, they are wearing masks. And the exception to that are people jogging, where they are very aware of their distance from people. But if I were to go outside right now and walk around the block without a mask, no one would pass me. Even with a mask, they would cross the street. So there's, you know, a lot of awareness of it. I think partly because we've never had anyone here saying, oh, it doesn't matter, just do what you want. Um, and you, you couldn't go to a store or you couldn't even visit someone in the hospital if you wanted to, mask or no mask. In Minneapolis, I see not as many people, but many people wearing masks. Not as many people as I would like, but many people wearing masks. And then as you go out to the suburbs, it gets to be fewer and fewer people. And um, I was recently waiting for someone to make a purchase in a large chain kind of outdoorsy store. And um, this person came out of the store kind of like extremely irritated because they had been sort of like playing dodge essentially with a, a slew of unmasked customers, you know, or, you know, even to go pick up a prescription at the Walgreens here. And there's an announcement over the PA, you're required to wear a mask in the store. Um, and then people are not doing it. And it puts also people like the cashiers or vulnerable um, workers in the position of not only being on the front line of these things, but also being in the position of attempting to enforce that sort of stuff when security has not been or enforcement of that sort of rule has not been their job. And that's one of the things I'm really interested in. Like, where is that? In, who's going to enforce that? You're a radiation oncologist, so you're not working directly with COVID patients, but you are in hospitals. And I just we wanted to ask, you know, how the pandemic has been affecting your daily life at work and also whether or not it's been affecting your writing or your writing practice. You know, I have to be honest, the first month, COVID really became something palpable to us in mid-March when the cruise ship docked and unloaded its patients and they transferred without warning to almost every hospital in the Bay Area COVID positive patients. So, you know, on essentially mid-March, March 14th, we suddenly had to face the fact that we had COVID patients at almost every hospital in the Bay Area. And it was pretty scary at first. I, I will tell you that the guidelines that we received, they seemed to change almost daily at the beginning and certainly weekly after a little bit of time. 
I think as a radiation oncologist, what scares me the most is for roughly two months, most elective procedures didn't happen. So women weren't getting mammograms, people weren't getting colonoscopies. Um, there's even a fear that there have been a lot of cardiac event deaths because people are afraid to go to the emergency room. They're dying at home. So as an oncologist, anytime you're faced with something like that, your worry is, does this mean I'm going to see people later on with more advanced disease that I now can't cure? You know, I have patients who are afraid to come to the hospital for follow-up. And I have to say things like, you know, you'll see less people here than you do at the grocery store, right? <laughs> that there's virtually no one here. It's pretty empty. I have to force myself not to say it's a graveyard because no one likes to hear that expression when talking about the hospital. Um, with writing, it's been interesting. I, I'm working on a novel manuscript that I actually left alone for about a year. And during the pandemic, I went back to it. And I realized after a while that I think I went back to it because there was a strange comfort in just being lost and looking at paragraphs and cutting things, honing things, doing the sentence work that I could lose hours where I didn't have to think about this virus. Um, I at first thought that it was just doctors, but I've learned by talking to other people that virtually no one sleeps through the night anymore. <laughs> so if I can find, you know, four hours to just play with words, it, it it's actually been kind of a huge relief to have that. That's really interesting. The thing about insomnia, that does seem like really pervasive. I was and then also hearing you talk about the anxiety of going to the hospital, um, with, you know, is this, I had a fall like maybe a couple of weeks ago at this point and I fell and I bruised a bone in my, my scaphoid bone and it's like a small bone in your hand and it can turn into, if you, you know, if you don't treat it, arthritis or whatever. And my dad is a doctor and I called him and I was like, can I avoid going to the doctor? And I held up my hand to FaceTime and he could see that it was blue and he was like, you have to go. And I was terrified and I went to the hospital and the social distancing was so good. I was kind of blown away by how well the University of Minnesota's hospitals and clinics were taking care of that. I felt totally safe. Um, and I had been freaked out for months about going to the doctor, just months. You know, I kind of thought, um, you know, den of virus. And uh, it was probably safer than going maybe to the grocery store. Um, <laughs> I'm so happy that he made me go. And um, then also like what you're talking about, about the the lack of sleep. I've also just been thinking, thinking about my house as like a space of danger. Like the more tired I get, like I just get a little bit less competent. Like I can't find my words as well. I can't find objects. I like stopped sharpening the knives because I was like, who knows what's going to happen here? And, you know, you just... I feel like, um, so I'm curious about how, like, what risks do you, um, like, how have you modified things that you do or don't do, given what you're saying about that? Well, the funny thing is, I, I never came home from work and um, took off my shoes and most of my clothing at the front door. Um, but I do now. And I'm not even sure if I need to do that, but that was part of the original guidelines. So it's kind of now stuck in my head that what if I have something on me? What if I endanger my husband? Um, you know, things like that. And the other thing is I 
find myself going to sleep earlier because I'm already anxious about not getting enough sleep. So, you know, whereas I might binge watch, you know, beachfront bargain hunt, I just don't do that because I'm worried that I won't get enough sleep. And so I go to bed and then I wake up multiple times during the night. Usually one of the times I wake up in full sweat, anxious, um, it's almost, I read, I actually wrote a poem that was published in the San Francisco Chronicle about this, that that response, that adrenaline response, so many of us, so many of us in healthcare, we can't turn it off because everyone is anxious. So we spend all of our days trying to make people less anxious, but that in and of itself makes us anxious. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of a perverse thing, but those are kind of the issues. Now that you've mentioned that, the poem, could you read it for us? Sure. Adrenaline. God of panic. God of safety. You who gifted us this chemical to ensure in a moment's notice we can fight or flee. I come now to plead mercy. The small fruits you left above our kidneys now refuse to stop firing off their messages. Night after night, I cannot calm myself. These glands meant to protect me now, keeping me on high alert. When I fall into dream, I am again at the hospital, walking the long path toward the double doors. And as in waking life, the question rises, will this be the day, the day I get infected? Even in sleep, I am managing my patient's panic. I come now to ask for even one night's relief. Let me slumber long enough to find myself at the end of the dock, the blue Caribbean, the only thing in front of me. Let me sit pretending to fish when all I am doing is studying the myriad shades of blue I took for granted for so long. Let the man I love come check on me, come kiss me on the back of my neck. Just for one night, let there be no virus, nothing to worry about except rain clouds advancing. Oh, that's so perfect. Thank you so much. Um, I feel like that captures this very specific, unending, restless feeling. I mean, I, I can't imagine what it's like to be a physician at this time, but um, even my own restless heart, um, I feel like is, that's really beautifully articulated. Thank you. You wrote The Affliction be long before we'd ever heard of COVID. And yet for me, as I read it, there were a lot of moments in the book that chime with our current circumstance. I was thinking of Between Men, which is about a man who's choosing to die alone, not of COVID, but of cancer. And I wonder if you could also read that and maybe we can talk about these two texts together. Sure. The beach was exactly an eight-minute walk away, and despite wanting to stay locked up inside the house, Link found himself walking down to the beach twice a day. It became a habit for him, a kind of pilgrimage. It was always the same. He would walk down his street, make a left-hand turn, and walk over the pedestrian bridge to the beach. Sometimes he would walk on the pier, but mostly he just walked or stood on the sand. 
orange juice, and sparkling wine. What more could one desire for breakfast? Each morning, Link drank a cup of instant coffee and then filled a tumbler with ice, followed by a quarter glass of orange juice and the remaining three quarters of the glass with sparkling wine. The walk to the beach then followed. On some days, he would even forgo the coffee. There were times when he would stay at the beach for hours. On other occasions, he would walk around for 15 minutes and then walk home. He saw some of the same people at the beach almost daily. There was the old man who always wore pastel blues and pinks and sat on a rotting bench eating a bagel each morning. He was a man of few expressions. There was glum and glummer with only a mild change in his face as he ate the bagel. And there was the Chinese woman who did stretches and quick jabbing movements with her hands, jabbing at the air as if at birds, only she could see birds attacking her. There was the homeless man who wandered aimlessly, muttering something about cats and cleanliness. There was the young woman briskly walking her small dog, a dog that always appeared better groomed than she did, at least four pink or red ribbons in its fur, as if the mane on its head were, in fact, a hairstyle. The sun would be far behind them all. On the other side of the city, there would be light in the sky, but no sun. The sand would be a filthy gray dotted with trash, but at least the trash changed daily. The ocean would be there with its insistent noise and smell, and at least there was this one constant. Link knew what he would find at the beach. He knew what each day brought, and each morning on his walk, he wondered if his final day had come, if that was the day, the very one. Some people, when faced with death, find themselves possessed with an undeniable urge to do things, to do everything they had ever wanted to do, but had never found the time. They travel to distant lands, they jump off bridges into murky water, they rappel down cliffs, fly in helicopters, dive in shark-infested waters, venture out on walking safaris in the bush, hoping to hear the lion's unmistakable grumbling roar. They live and live dangerously because they know they are about to die. But Link was not one of those people. Honestly, neither am I. Link wanted to die privately. He was absolutely certain about this. He wanted to die alone. He wanted to disappear the way an actor playing the Buddha might in an old movie. It has taken me a long time, but I actually admire this about Link when I think of him now. But back then, I did not understand any of it. Hey man, you okay? I said to Link. I could tell he had almost no idea what I had said to him. He turned around and stared at me with that odd expression on his face, to which I would over time become quite accustomed. I've seen you out here before. Man, you almost walked into that garbage can. Oh, sorry, I was just thinking, sorry. No problem, man. I do that sometimes, too. I'm Diego. Diego. 
Hi, Diego, Diego. Link was always amazed at the way Americans could just strike up conversations, how they always seemed to want to talk. Link believed that silence bothered Americans. And yet, I was the first person who had spoken to him at the beach. Link mumbled a few more things and said he had to get going. On the way home, Link must have wondered why I had talked to him. Later, he told me how once home, he had gone out on the patio, sat in his single lounge chair and fallen asleep. When he woke up, it was already late afternoon, time to return to the beach. On the walk to the beach then, Link noticed the creamsicle-colored blooms of the hibiscus in various yards. He wondered why anyone would plant such hideous plants with their gaudy display of intermittently disturbing the hedges. He could hear the crackling of the telephone wires overhead once he made the turn toward the beach. Knew that the humidity must have been fairly high that afternoon. Slowly, he found himself filled with anxiety that I would still be there at the beach. He was worried that maybe even someone else might talk to him, and so he stopped, turned around, and walked back home. Do I trust the story? Do I trust the way he recalled things? Not really. You know I don't trust the way many of these things are recalled. But memory is always like this. I don't pretend it can be any other way. I stopped pretending a long time ago. Thank you very much. There's so many interesting, you know, like even just from the poem that you read when you're thinking about, is this the moment of the, you know, that I'm going to get infected? And he's thinking, is this the, he has that anxiety. Is this the moment someone's going to talk to me if I'm remembering the passage right? Uh, right. The, the, those things are parallel, but also that passage to me is the way that I feel when I'm jogging through the city now, you know, like I see people at a distance, I'm watching them. I don't want them to talk to me. I don't, you know, I, I don't want them to interact with me. And yet there's this kind of pervasive sort of loneliness of that, you know, movement through the city that feels like what I think it's like for most people to walk through the city now. I, I know that, um, you know, you obviously weren't predicting that there was going to be a pandemic, but I do believe that art committed, you know, act of writing can and sometimes sense things that aren't totally manifest in reality yet, you know, but might be on its way. Do you ever feel that way? I don't know if I feel it in quite that way. Um, I think there are different traditions. And if you look at an, an Anglo or Germanic tradition, people have been conditioned to think of time as linear. And if you look at other traditions, if you look at, say, the Vedic tradition from India or um, some of the pre-Columbian traditions of South America, they don't see time that way. They see it as something cyclical. Or Juan, Juan Rufo's book, uh, Pedro Paramo, which is a really interesting It's uh, a book I love yeah. and was a huge influence on me. But the thing that is interesting is that if you're within a cyclical tradition of time everything has happened before and everything will happen again and so you know i am old enough to have lived through a different pandemic and watching people die and i'm sure whether i consciously or subconsciously do it 
I draw from things that I've experienced in my life. And it can seem in a moment like this as if it's predictive, but it's that there are only so many emotions we feel as human beings. And there's so only so many things that we face as human beings. And I'm not going to be Russian and say to be human is to suffer, but to be human is to experience certain things over and over again. Um, so I think some of, some of what you sense is, is that, that, you know, fear or anxiety about mortality is something many people live with. Um, I'm always amazed when I meet people who practice some of the Eastern religions like Buddhism and they say that they've just let everything go. And I just think, how does one do that? <laughs> how do I sign up? How do I know that it won't work for me? <laughs> but, you know, I do think that the, the job of any good writer or artist is to pay attention and if you're paying attention and you're trying to capture the world for someone else or a facet of the world or how one sees the world, these works that you produce always become larger than anything that you can do. It's so, um, to think about the two texts together, I can't but notice the relationship between the sort of fear and fantasy, like this idea that you know, part of the fear is a fear that, um, like a good memory will be tainted. You know, you'd like to resurface it, but what if this time it comes back and it has something bad or dangerous in it? And there's so much of that, I feel like around us now. And it so much of that present in both things, like this real desire for tactile and sensory pleasure, like the blues in the water, um, you know, the pleasure of walking, but then also all of the dangers that that might present and all of the ways that those are at war. Um, like within us and also in the world. Um, it's really interesting to hear. Yeah, like I don't see, I have sometimes have a see something pretty or have a, I'm like, and I'll have the thought like, oh, I'm having a normal thought, but actually I shouldn't be because this, there's this terrible thing happening. Does you guys ever have that happen to you now? Oh, all the time. <laughs> no, I sleep well and I'm perfectly stable. <laughs> 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 Everything, Everything's fine, right? Um, in my family, we have this... Um, I feel like a, a lot of my brother and I speak in like Star Wars parlance all the time. And there's the moment in the original Star Wars where Han Solo is, um, you know, on the Death Star or whatever. And he gets asked by the Empire, like he's impersonating a story. How is everything going down there? And he's sort of like shooting things all over the place. He goes, everything's fine. And um, I don't know. I keep trying to come up with language for, you know, like I haven't been sick. No one very close to me has been sick. But like what kind of fine am I? Um, you know, I've, I started saying Minneapolis fine or pandemic fine. Then I moved to Minneapolis fine. And now I'm just like flat out lying fine. I don't even know. Um, <laughs> like, where is that? The sort of small talk, right? And um, I know some people have been kind of collecting the language around. How are you? Like when you write your email, I hope this finds you well. And the, now it's it's altered to like, I hope this finds you as well as could be expected under the current strange circumstances. And it's all just kind of like it's seeping in, in this ins really insidious way, even in, like the smallest conversation. So yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, you have the good thought and then you're like, how dare I, how dare I ask someone how they are? Um, and all of these pleasures are like kind of weirdly poisoned. And this also gets at this kind of American narrative of exceptionalism and, you know, thinking about um, American narratives about that we have about ourselves, that we think of ourselves as the best or the most advanced we're so exceptional um american lives like oh let's set the standard everyone 
wants to live in California, but we can no longer get into Europe due to our poor response to the coronavirus. We are now exceptional in how much um, we have failed with this virus. It's very true. It's very true. Is that going to be the end of our American? Maybe it's a good thing for the the end of the American exceptionalism narrative, you know, for that to go sort of down. But I, the other thing is, like, I think about what kind of economic difference that's going to make. I mean, people come here to America, which enhances America, although, of course, the president also just denied a bunch of stopped giving a bunch of visas uh, this week, you know, because it's a place people want to be. And that makes America a better place, a better country. But if, and California is a perfect example of that. I mean, look at all the different kinds of people that live in San Francisco. But if that goes away, that changes the country in some profound manner. It does. You know, I think there's something very sad about the fact that we aren't doing better. And I think it's easy to say this leader isn't doing their job or this person isn't saying enough. But I'm kind of a little bit concerned that as a society we don't we don't seem to be as empathetic as we thought we were um you know in places like italy and spain i have friends and family in spain they wouldn't go out because they were worried about their friend's grandmother or their friend's friend's grandmother and you know when i asked a friend of mine how people were managing he said well it's hard but we know we're all in it we know we have to do this. If we don't do it, too many of us will die. And yet, when I turn on the news and I see a ton of people not wearing masks, I just think, what's wrong with us? Like, why, why, can't, we, why can't we think about the public good? Why can't we think about society? And I don't have an answer for that, actually. Um, I know that a lot of doctors have been feeling both worried and, and somewhat angry because we know what our job is. We've always, you know, we took an oath to do that job. But at the same time, we just want someone to say, okay, we're going to make sure that you don't get overwhelmed. Okay, we're going to make sure you stay safe. And then we turn on the news and there's like 500,000 people on a beach all hugging and playing volleyball. And we're like, great. So we're going to be totally screwed. <laughs> So I don't, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could call it an American exceptionalism, but I don't know. I feel like something has changed over the past 50 years. I, I worry that as a country, we no longer see ourselves as a collective. And as a consequence, it's harder for us to make sacrifice because it's so much about us versus them that unlike in other countries, they don't, they don't want to make sacrifice for the good of the society because they don't see us as one society. That's so important, that idea of not, of the country not seeing itself as a collective. I mean, it, to me, it also uh, reminds me of another narrative that we've been talking about um, and we talked about in our last episode. Uh, George Floyd had COVID-19 when he was killed. Breonna Taylor was working as an EMT caring for people who are affected by coronavirus. In Slate recently, uh, the writer Stephen W. Thrasher used the term viral underclass to describe people who are made needlessly vulnerable to this virus. And I was uh, thinking a lot about how the way the joining of the pandemic narrative with the narrative of police brutality and Black Lives Matter, uh, which, 
you know, has been also in the news recently is going to affect the way that Americans think about themselves. Is it going to create a collective view like people have empathy toward what's happening with the people who are complaining, not complaining, protesting and refusing to accept the way that the police are treating them? Or is it going to create more us versus them situation? What what have the protests been like in San Francisco and how is that connecting to the virus there? We didn't have as huge a protest here as in other cities. We definitely had protests and we definitely had looting, especially um, downtown near the the shopping district. Um, there were more protests in Oakland, but I'm not too aware of how big the turnout was. You know, one of the things that one of the things that is interesting to me is. I often want to feel hopeful. I can remember when, you know, there was the horrible shooting in of the little kids in Newtown. I thought, there's no way on earth we're not going to do something about guns. But we didn't. We have certainly, as a country, seen, thanks to the advent of cell phones, many black men and women and other people of color die on camera. Um, this is certainly not the first and, and just like with Newtown I haven't seen much happen but because of the pandemic so many people are home and so many people are glued to the news cycle that I think the George Floyd incident not even an incident murder um, it, it couldn't be ignored everyone everyone saw it because we were all glued to the tv wanting to know well how many people have died of coronavirus at this point how many people are infected and then that was on the daily news cycle and i think it caused a lot of outrage i think what makes me hopeful is that it's a wide variety of people from all different backgrounds that i see at the protests and you know will it make a change i don't know i don't know i think you know, the change is not just changing policing. You know, we have a systemic problem in this country with with white supremacy. And it's going to take a lot more than just changing policing to fix that. I mean, it, you can just go sector by sector, banking, healthcare, um, social care, etc. It's kind of built into the system. It was um, in Minneapolis, one of the things I know that, you know, we were anxious about watching the protests um, was that there would be this huge COVID spike afterwards. It will come. (laughs) No, it actually, so it didn't is the interesting thing. It didn't come? Well, because so many of the protesters were wearing masks. So this like made us Uh, really hopeful because these people were protesting, but they were so conscientious, I think in large part about caring for each other in that collective way that you're talking about um, that... I think that idea of a collective, at least in that sense, was beginning to resurface and the evidence of the effectiveness of that kind of care and the moral importance of it. Right. And I think like, you know, maybe I would just go back to the question of, you know, we no longer think of ourselves as a collective. I think like, you know, there's probably a significant part of this country that never really thought of us as a collective, right, in that inclusive sense. And that has to do with like all of our original sins, um, you know, uh, genocide of Native peoples and, and slavery and all of those things which are, you know, built into our educational system and, and inherited and, and um, teach us not to care for other people. Um, and even in the ways that we perform celebrations of each other, this is evident, right? You know, you, you were talking about 
um, feeling watching people on the beach, like they don't care about doctors, which is like, I mean, I, I can see, imagine how that, um, that must be horrible to look at. And then, you know, even when they're celebrating frontline workers, you know, the Trump administration has tried to like militarize these celebrations. There was a blue angel flyover in New York city for healthcare workers at a cost of $60,000 per flight hour. I would, how much PPE could that buy? Um, a lot. (laughs) Right. You know, like seemed to piss off a lot of people certainly pisses me off. Um, so, I mean, is there a way that you think we should be celebrating, people who are caring for those with coronavirus, medical professionals and others, or, or is that even just the wrong idea? I don't think anyone in healthcare really wants to be celebrated. I think we just want to know that people are thinking about the fact that our healthcare system, although we're the wealthiest country on the planet, um, is not equipped to handle, you know, a large out of control um, outbreak. ICUs are very expensive, yes. Um, It takes a lot of years to fine-tune a team. I crack up every time I hear people on the news, um, anchors saying, well, we need more ventilators. And I keep saying, okay, so you have more ventilators. How are you going to mint ICU doctors? How are you going to mint ICU nurses? These are highly trained people. How are you going to create more respiratory therapists? Like, who's going to operate these ventilators if we're all sick? (laughs) um, So, you know, I think that, I think that a simple thing like thanking someone is more than enough. I I actually feel that you mentioned the class of people that are on the front line that are not in healthcare. I mean, can you imagine if you had to stand behind a cash register all day and person after person kept coming up and every single person coming up is potentially infected, and yet people still treat so many of those folks poorly. I mean, I would be, I don't go to the grocery store, I'm too panicked, but if I did, I'd be saying thank you to that person. Thank you for allowing me to come here and get food. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't think we need flyovers. I don't think we need parades. I don't think we need 50 gun salutes. I think we're willing to do what we do, but we just ask other people to try to do their part too. See, Dale, we want to thank you for being on the show with us and for your writing and your work with patients. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. We'd also like to remind our listeners to go out and pick up The Affliction uh, or any one of C. Dale's uh, terrific poetry collections. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This show is produced by Andrea Todd-Hope. We'd like to thank our show intern, Dylan Miettinen of the University of Minnesota. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook at FNFPod, Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast, and Twitter at FNFTalk. Hope you guys are staying healthy out there. Please keep wearing those masks.